Extraordinary Districts, Season 5. Where are all those dollars going? Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. We believe that all children deserve a high-quality education and work to ensure that they get one. This is the first episode of Season 5 of Extraordinary Districts. In this season, we will be looking at how educators across the country are using the money that the federal government has sent to schools in the wake of COVID. In the process, I hope we get an insight into what is going on in the field as a whole. The federal COVID money is what is supposed to help schools and districts address a whole slew of issues that have arisen during the pandemic, from learning needs to technological inequities. To be honest, there's a lot of confusion about how they are spending the money. Part of the confusion comes from the fact that there's no real centralized source of information about how the 13,000 plus school districts are spending that money. And states, districts, and schools have a lot of leeway in how they spend it. That means that to get a sense of where the money is going, you kind of have to talk with principals and superintendents and assistant superintendents. So that's what we'll do. If you have listened to any of the other Extraordinary Districts podcasts, you know that we began this podcast as a way to tell the stories of ordinary school districts that get extraordinary results for their students of color and students from low-income backgrounds. Seasons 1 and 2 profiled six high-performing and improving districts from across the country, five of which were included in my latest book, Districts That Succeed, Breaking the Correlation Between Race, Poverty, and Achievement, published by Harvard Education Press. When the pandemic hit, we pivoted from doing deeply reported stories on districts to talking by Zoom with some of these district folks about how they were adjusting to the pandemic. My colleague Tanji Reed Marshall and I expanded the conversations to include other principals and superintendents, and we ended season four with an extended discussion of reading instruction. So now we're at season five, and I'm excited about revisiting some of the folks I have written about and talked with in the past to hear how they are thinking about a huge infusion of federal money into schools. Here's just a sample of what you'll hear. These funds were intended to get us through a crisis, and we're doing that, and at the same time, finding some time to innovate as well. This is a once in a lifetime. This is the money to use it for our dreams that we probably would never have enough money to do it any other way. We'll be hearing from folks who were in previous seasons of Extraordinary Districts and who I have written about in my books, but we're also going to hear from some new folks who I am including because I think they have interesting ways of thinking about the federal money. We don't have any data yet to say whether one way of spending it is more effective or better than any other way. That information is years from being available. But educators and policymakers who are looking for ideas about how to spend the money in thoughtful ways will find them here. Before we hear from educators, I thought we should try to get a kind of broad national overview. I said there's no centralized source of information, but there are some folks trying to get a handle on how all this money is being spent. One organization that is looking at it is Future Ed. 
Hi, I'm Phyllis Jordan. I am uh, Associate Director of Future Ed, which is a think tank at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy. And I've been spending a lot of time looking at how districts are planning to spend their COVID relief dollars. Every district had to file a plan with the state and lay out how they plan to spend their ESSER three money. Burbio's analysts are going through it and sorting it into 100 categories. We're looking at how does this break down by the region that the school district it is, the size of the school district, the setting, is it rural or urban? One thing you need to know is that the federal money came in three waves under the Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief Act, or ESSER for short. The first round, ESSER 1, was $13.5 billion. The second round was $54.3 billion. And the third was a whopping $122.7 billion. Just to give a little sense of the scale of that money, it is way more than what the federal government sends to schools as part of what is known as Title I, which is targeted at helping students from low-income backgrounds. In 2021, Title I was $16.5 billion. President Biden has asked Congress to increase it to $36.5 billion, but ESSER funds total $190 billion. And schools have to spend it all by 2024 or the money disappears. In order to get their ESSER 3 money, states and districts have to submit plans for how they are spending it. Already, there have been stories about foolish ways some districts are planning to spend the money, but that's not what Phyllis Jordan has seen. There's been so much in the news about people spending ESSER dollars on athletic facilities. When you look at these plans holistically, you see so much valuable spending that's planned. We looked at athletic facilities. How many of the districts are planning to do athletic facilities? We found 47 out of 2,700 we've looked at. So that's one and a half percent, maybe. Same time, 50% are going to do summer learning programs. 50% are doing HVAC. 60% are spending on teachers and academic interventionists and guidance counselors. A third are spending to hire psychologists. A third are spending on instructional materials. So there is a lot of money committed to be spent. I asked Dr. Luval Brown, superintendent of Ithaca, New York, to give me an overview of how his district is spending the money it received. Ithaca is in upstate New York, home to Cornell University, and it has about 5,000 students. I first met Dr. Brown when my colleague Tangie Reed Marshall and I did another podcast, Ed Trusted, about critical race theory, and I wanted to hear what he had to say about the federal COVID money. A primary focus for the federal dollars were to open our schools back up and open them up safely. So yeah, a significant amount of our resources have gone into infrastructure upgrades and enhancements that we needed, filtration, the supplies, masks, hand sanitizers, and other cleaning supplies to make sure that our building is safe, and the emergency staffing um, substitutes, additional educators to allow for us to have the kind of spacing, uh, physical distancing that was required, and the additional staffing needed to cover for folks when possible, cover for folks when folks were out because of illness. So the staffing, emergency staffing, the infrastructure, the enhancements, that was a big part of the dollars. And yeah, we've been open and that was the intended purpose. But I could not imagine having our schools open with the lack of federal funds or budgets that could support us being able to pivot quickly, get the supplies in when needed, test 
I mean, we're te- who would have thought two years ago we would be a a place where young people were being tested for a vi- an infectious disease. We are doing that at scale for thousands of young people. All students and staff are tested weekly. Mind you, by the time this podcast is released, that may have changed, but it was true for many months in Ithaca. As much as possible, it's been a normal school year. We have to be creative with our scheduling. We have to ask for folks to be patient and flexible, but young people are in classes. We have a schedule. Um, Folks know when to get tested. They know where to go. It's regular, it's reliable, and it's valid. So yeah, we've done that at scale when we're innovators and educators. There was a time when we were using uh, overhead projectors and writing on plastic paper. <laughs> How we did that back then, I have no idea. So just like then, we were making the best of what we have. We're making the best of what we have right now. I, mean, I w- would love to say I'm in this place of using a large percentage of that money to be innovative, but I'll be absolutely clear, and I will say it from my perspective as well. Educators are not in the best place to truly innovate right now. <laughs> we are reacting oftentimes or reacting to shifting guidance and data. We are having to deal with folks' physical and mental health. So yeah, I would love to say we are spending half or more of that money truly innovating our programs, but that's just not true. And that would be intellectually dishonest. Yeah, there is some innovation. Yeah, we're having to change. We're doing things we never thought we could do. Yes, I do see us being different and better on the other side of this. But let's be clear, um, this is not like the last time I was a part of significant federal infusions of dollars, which were intended to be used for innovation, when you could allocate a significant portion of those dollars just to innovative structural programs. These funds were intended to get us through a crisis, and we're doing that, and at the same time, finding some time to innovate as well. Before we talk with our next folks, I thought you'd be interested in something else that Phyllis Jordan at FutureEd told me. Our most recent analysis looks at poverty level. Our our low-income school district with high concentrations of poverty spending monies in different ways than the more fluent districts. We find that the poorer the district is, the more likely it is to spend on HVAC and a category called repairs to prevent illness. That includes things like lead pipes um, or lead paint, lead abatement. mold and mildew from leaking roofs and those sorts of issues. A lot of plumbing. HVAC, of course, is heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. The poorer the school district, the more likely it is to spend on these sort of capital projects, including mostly HVAC. The poorer it is, the more likely it is to spend on instructional materials. The reality is the poorer districts, because of the way this federal funding is set up, they have more money to spend but they also have greater needs. They've had crumbling buildings for years. They've had textbooks that say George W. Bush is president. You just need to watch Abbott Elementary School and you see the full range of problems that beset some of the poorer school districts, um, under-resourced school districts. And so this money, this wasn't what Congress set out to do, but in a sense, this um, infusion of federal aid could give these high poverty districts a chance to catch up on some of their pent-up needs. For those of you who haven't seen it, Abbott Elementary is a sitcom on ABC that is set in a crumbling school building in Philadelphia. It's a sitcom, but I will say the setting feels exactly like many schools I've been in, including in Philadelphia, right down to the flickering fluorescent lights. 
federal ESSER funds are supposed to be used to address the learning needs of students and schools in the wake of COVID, and most people think of learning needs as being, say, reading. So it takes a minute to understand that addressing school building issues are part of addressing learning needs. It's not that HVAC is divorced from any academic um, gains. I mean, if kids are too hot or too cold, if there's mold in the air, kids with asthma are going to be sick. You know, there, there are so many ways that a good school climate, a literal climate, improves learning. If you can mitigate virus and not just COVID, but any viruses, and you can provide a better learning environment for kids, kids are going to learn. That is what I think we heard from Dr. Brown, and it is also what I heard from the folks in Seaford, Delaware. Seaford is in Southern or Lower Delaware, and I profiled it in Season 2 of Extraordinary Districts and in my book, Districts That Succeed. Here is Dr. Corey Miklas, Superintendent of Seaford Public Schools, a rural Delaware district with about 3,500 students. It has received roughly $24 million in federal COVID funds, and he's giving an overview of how the district has spent its money. When the first round of um, ESSER came in, it really went to learning loss. And our main focus, we put in a, a very robust summer school last year and a very intensive acceleration program, hired more staff than we've ever hired before, brought in more kids, more technology needing to run those things. And then, you you know, we looked at just PPE supplies. So the amount of hand sanitizer and masks out of the gate that we had, you know, we had to deal with was tremendous. As we work through, you know, ESSER 2 and ESSER 3, you know, ESSER 2, we moved to, you know, adding some additional classroom space indoors and outdoors. We had a repurpose just for social distancing. We would take a big space that, you know, and maybe try to break it up a little bit more and redo a space that may have been storage to create classroom space so we could spread the students out this year. So we tried to be as creative as possible because we knew we could always use these as classrooms later. We went and we purchased like water filling stations where they could just put a bottle underneath instead of having all those touch points when we talk about district-wide technology, it wasn't just devices. It actually went into wireless switches, which then goes into our, that whole summer school program. This year, we're able to offer you know, more um, remote after-school programs for students. So that really goes into a lot of the learning loss as well. Just like round numbers, we're probably right around 50% of our funds have gone to air quality and facility repairs. When you get this influx of money, it just helps you take care of, you know, your HVAC system. But what's funny there, and Doug, you can go into details, you turn over one rock, next thing you know, you got to replace the roof as well. He's talking with Doug Henry, supervisor of Buildings and Grounds. And I'm going to let you listen to Mr. Henry for a while, because I was really interested in how he demonstrated why what Phyllis Jordan called under-resourced districts are spending a lot of money on school building issues. Here's Doug Henry. We did a, a full building assessment. So I'm talking building envelope and um, mechanical. Envelope means roof, walls, and foundation. Mechanical are the systems inside, plumbing, electrical, heating, and air conditioning. So we did one of those back in 2019, which was a very useful tool 
for us to be able to move forward with ESSER funding because basically we just refer right back to that assessment. Like, um, where are we at with ventilation? You know, can we, how can we pull the air that they're asking us to pull in these old buildings? And I think every building operator out there came across that issue. You know what I mean? It's like even the new buildings, it was hard to push what they were asking us to push as far as air inside the buildings. What he means is that once we realized that COVID is an airborne disease, it became clear that one of the best tools we have to keep people from getting sick is good ventilation systems so that any virus circulating gets sucked out and filtered through what are called MERV filters. We would actually burn our units up, the motors on our units, within a few hours if we had put a filter like that in inside our units. Now, a hospital set up for something like that. You know, they're set up to to pull that kind of air through that, that heavy of a filter. Our schools are not. Um, if you think about a little unit ventilator in a classroom, if you put a filter like that in there, that thing's not going to get any air and you, you're going to just burn the, the motors up in it. Temporarily, they used a chemical disinfectant on the existing filters, but that was just a temporary fix. And Superintendent Miklas wasn't interested in temporary fixes. We sat in this office and we said, you know what, what we need to do is extend and, and set the district up for 10 years. That's really our goal. Not a short-term fix. It seems flashy. Um, we try to be, you know, just really smart about how we use this money. One piece of background you should know is that Delaware law says that anytime a school district spends $700,000 or more on a building project, it has to submit the project to a referendum vote. That requirement was waived for the ESSER funds, which meant that this was a rare opportunity indeed. Because Seaford schools have needed work for a long time, which had become clear in that 2019 building assessment done by outside engineers. I've been here 20 years. I feel, I feel like I know every building, like, like my house, you know what I mean? But you don't, truly, you don't. Um, when they get inside of them, they start picking them apart, you know, and it kind of makes you feel bad as a building guy because you're like, man, I was proud of my buildings. But they said, these buildings are well-maintained. It's just, here's what you're dealing with. You're dealing with old pipes. You're dealing with old plumbing pipes. You're, old, you're dealing with old electrical systems. You know what I mean? Like all of that stuff, you don't even think about it. I mean, you know, you think, I mean, our buildings, two of them were built in, one was 1927 and one was 1928. You can imagine what those electrical systems and plumbing pipes, you know, kind of look like underneath the buildings and stuff like that. So when they really got digging through with a fine tooth comb, it kind of opens your eyes to, hey, here's where we're at. And we got to come up with a path moving forward on how we're going to fix these things and repair things. So, like I said, COVID by far was not a good thing, but it was a good thing that it came along and we had that ESSER funding available to make some of these changes that we desperately needed. Um, we had one building every time the wind blew from the northeast. We got flooded inside the classroom. I mean, it would actually pour right down the walls. It was that bad. You know, that kind of stuff we've been able to address, you know, with some of the funding. And then, like I said, some of our roof systems are, you know, at the end of their life expectancy. So, you know, we're looking at recodings and that type of deal. And then, you know, like I got told Dr. Miklos not too long ago, water infiltration inside our buildings is key. Like, you got to keep the water out to keep our buildings safe and, and basically environmentally you know, sound. Because anytime water gets in, you know what else you get? You get mildew, you get mold, you get all of those ugly things um, start going on in your buildings. And then you get issues with the occupants and stuff like that as far as health and safety. Here's Dr. Miklas again. We had a solid plan. Now you're dealing with supply chain issues. And I know one thing, just for one project, we, we expected the cost approximately $8 million. And now with um, the cost going up, it's adding close to another million dollars onto it. So 
just when you think you have your budget set, it gets blown up because the parts and the prices they're changing daily. Yeah, that's the so, part that really hurts, boss. And I'm glad you said that because that's something else we probably need to talk about and let people know. Um, so when we headed into this, you know, like I said, I talked to the architects and engineers, and they were like, "Okay, if we set a million dollars per school aside, we can really attack some of these things." You know what I mean? We we got a good start. We can we can really knock some things out. And now it's gotten to the point where you're at a million and four at one building and you're scratching your head on how much are we really going to get besides those power plants? You know what I mean? Like we're not going to get any rooftop units. We're not going to get any piping inside the school now. And and that really hurts because, you know, then you're like, okay, it's kind of, I guess it's depressing in there in because you're thinking, Hey, I'm going to go address a lot of issues with this money. Um, but that's, that whole thing is shrinking um, by the day because of the supply chain issues and, the way costs are going up on everything. And that's not the only issue. It's going to be tough. With all the work out there, I don't know there's enough vendors in the state of Delaware, Pennsylvania, and Maryland to cover that scope of work in that time frame. It's, it's going to be really tough to pull off. A couple of years back, you know, you could you could walk in there with a vendor and say, hey, I want to put a new ceiling up in this building here. How much is it going to cost me? And if he didn't want the work, he was going to tell you, oh, you know, it'd be $300,000 for me to put that ceiling up. You know what I mean? Now they're walking in and they're saying, nah, I'm not really interested. Like, uh, this is too much, too, too large a scope of work for me. I'm out of here. And, and so it's like, they're just picking and choosing. Like, hey, I don't want this job, but I'll take that one. That one looks a little easier than this one. Um, so it's not even a bidding war anymore. It's kind of like, I'm just, I'm good. I'm good where I'm at. You know, I, I got enough work right now. So we've heard from two districts, one in New York, one in Delaware. And what we've heard is that the federal COVID money is being used in those districts to keep students and staff safe from COVID. And for the most part, they've been successful. They have each had times of high levels of community transmission, Ithaca in part because of the high number of college students, Seaford because they are home to poultry plants, which have had high transmission rates among workers, many of whom are parents of Seaford students. Each has suffered illness. But I couldn't see from the data available that either has seen documented spread within their schools. They seem to have been able to contain COVID. They have also used the money to address some long-standing building needs. In our next episode, we will hear from some more folks who are addressing different kinds of long-standing needs. I hope you'll join us as I talk with thoughtful and effective educators who are grappling with how to operate schools in a brand new context. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. I want to thank everyone at the Education Trust who has helped support these podcasts and the folks at Tonal Park who produce them. Thanks to Mike Patillo for the original music score and for recording and editing. This is Karen Chenoweth. See you next time. Music